If you have Bibles with you, please open up to the Gospel of John, chapter 12. We are back, working our way through John's Gospel. Last week, we looked at the occasion where Mary anointed Jesus with some expensive perfume, and where Judas was got offended and his offense gave birth to betrayal. I also shared some of my personal insights on women in the church, their, the role of women and the position of women in the church. If, uh, and you, it seemed like it really blessed the ladies who were here last week. If you missed that, especially the ladies, I encourage you to give it a listen. And, and men, if you weren't here, I encourage you to listen to it because I think in our minds, men, brothers, <laughs> we need to see things differently. We need to see things in a new and different way that will help set these amazing women in our lives free to be everything that God created them to be. Amen? Amen. Amen. I just can't let this go. Men, we have a huge role to play. We have a huge role to play. And we, we can use the role that we play in the lives of women to either be a blessing to them and bring liberty, or we could put them in bondage. And so, guys, do the right thing. Do right things right. Treat them with dignity and with honor and with respect and with mountains of love. I've been a pastor a long time, and, and I find this to be true. As goes the man, so goes the family. Okay? I'm not saying that women are powerless by any means. Have you met my wife? <laughs> but we have a huge role to play. You know? They say behind every great man is a great woman. I think behind... <laughs> behind every great man is a greater woman. I think behind every great woman is a man who's loved her well and respected her and honored her and helped set her free. Okay, John chapter 12. Um, we're going to continue chapter 12 today uh, as we look at Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. So, we're going to look at verses 12 to, to 19. You can follow along as I read that text. The next day, the crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. As it is written, do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seating, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did, did not understand at all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had to be done to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the truth and the power, the authority that's in your word. Lord, use even me today to speak your word 
in a life-giving way to your people. Lord, let, let the, your word take deep root in our hearts. And let the result be this. Make us to be more like Jesus. Amen? All right, so verse by verse. Verse 12 says, The next day the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus is on his way to, to Jerusalem. The next day. This is the day after the party that we talked about last week. The party that was at Simon the leper's house, the, where Jesus was the guest of honor and where Lazarus was there also. I can imagine Jesus seated at the table. and you know The healed former leper, Simon on one side, and the guy who was dead and now is alive, raised from the dead by Jesus, sitting on his other side. This is a, I'd like to have been at this party. This sounded like it was going to be a pretty good party. right? Lazarus was there. So, was, so were his sisters, Mary and Martha. And it was at this party where Mary anointed Jesus. This is the day after. It also says that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem on the day after the party. Why? Why was he on his way to Jerusalem? Well, we looked at this a few weeks ago. It's in preparation for the Passover. If you read verses 55 to 57 in John 11, you'll understand it. I'll read those for you now. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, many went up from the country to Jerusalem, which is what Jesus is doing, for their ceremonial cleansing before the Passover. They kept looking for Jesus, and as they stood in the temple courts, they asked one another, what do you think? Isn't he coming to the festival at all? But the chief priest and the Pharisee had given orders that anyone who found out what Jesus was should report it so they might arrest him. So it's the time of the Passover, and there were customs, there were ceremonial cleansing customs that many of the Jews would participate in prior to the Passover so that they wouldn't be excluded from this high holy day. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, and there are people looking out for him. The Passover is at hand. Preparations need to be made, and the chief priests and the Pharisees have people looking out for Jesus. Why are they looking out for him? They want to capture him, and they want to kill him. They never expected this type of arrival into Jerusalem that Jesus made. Verse 13 talks about the people. It says, they took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Now listen, raising Lazarus from the dead had a huge ripple effect. Man, it really impacted the community. People from all over the region were either there to see it or they heard about it. And now all they wanted was to see Jesus. Verses 17 and 18 of today's text makes that perfectly clear. It says, Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, uh, went out to meet him. Right? So, uh, I mean, that's just black and white. Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead and he's drawing huge crowds as a result. I dare say... If God used one of us to raise somebody from the dead and you still came to this church, if, if, you, didn't, if you didn't start your own church as a result, but if you still came here, there'd be other people coming here that they want to talk to you. Hey, what's up with this, right? I, I could see why crowds would go out to meet Jesus. I'm thinking if I was alive then, I, I want to be there too. And not only did they, they want to come out to see Jesus, they wanted to make him their earthly king. They wanted to make him the king of Israel. That's why they're shouting, blessed is the king of Israel. 
You see, the people in that time, they were expecting a Messiah that would free them from their bondage to Rome. The Hebrews, the Israelites were in bondage to like, just about everybody else at the time to the Roman Empire. And who better to be their king? They're looking for a political, a military leader. Who better to be their king than someone who can multiply food, heal the sick, and raise the dead? Anybody with those abilities would lead an unstoppable army, right? You could just take a little boy's lunch and keep feeding the army forever, no matter how far you had to march. Somebody gets killed in battle, raise them from the dead. Somebody gets injured, heals them. That army is unstoppable. From, a, from one perspective, I understand why they, will, they want to be free from Rome. If you've never been in bondage, and I don't think any of us have lived in servitude, um, you'd want to be free too. They weren't expecting a spiritual Messiah. They certainly weren't expecting the Prince of Peace, not the one who would sacrifice his life to free them from sin. They weren't expecting someone to come and restore their broken relationship with the Father. But they did, nonetheless, greet him with um, a messianic greeting. And, and it's, what they say there comes from Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26. Very similar language. It says, Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. So when they say, Lord, save us, Hosanna is another way of saying Lord, save us. Hosanna literally means save us or save now. They were looking for a messianic king. They were looking for another David. That's really what they wanted. Someone who would rescue them from their terrible political circumstances. And for many, many reasons, they thought Jesus was it. Now, the chief priests and the Pharisees, they couldn't see it at all. They couldn't see anything messianic about Jesus. They were blinded by their religion. All they saw was a religious, political, and frankly, an economic threat. He was, he was threatening their gig, their thing. He was messing with their stuff. Now the people saw it, at least in part, at least enough to give Jesus this regal, uh, to, to receive him in this, and welcome him to Jerusalem in this regal fashion, right? Verses 14 and 15, it says, Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. As it is written, do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. This is one of the, the prophetic promises about Jesus' coming that he fulfills here in John chapter 12. Here, Jesus shows that his purpose was one of peace, the prince of peace. And he does that by metaphorically demonstratively by, by riding on the donkey. No, he, you know, why this and not that? You know, why didn't he come in on some mighty steed dressed and prepared for battle? Because that's not what he was coming for. Yeah, he's certainly coming as king of kings and lord of lords, but with, with a, a different method of operating, not what the people expected. And this was done, you know, there, here in this text here, we have two prophetic promises, the one from Psalms, and, and now this one here, Zechariah 9.9, which says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly, and riding on a donkey, 
on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I'm willing to bet in that time, those who were looking for a Messiah forgot about them, Zechariah 9, 9 verses. Right? It was only later that it made sense. And have you ever wondered, why palm branches? What's up with the palm branches? I was raised Catholic, right? And so we, we used to have what we called Cape Catholics, right? Which meant that you went to church on Christmas, on Ash Wednesday, on Palm Sunday, and Easter. Those are the four times a year that we used to, right? Palm Sunday, you would get the little palm stuff, and my grandmother would make these fancy-looking crosses, bending it and twisting it. And, and that makes anybody else have that experience? Hang on. So this is where we get the whole Palm Sunday thing from, Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. It's usually this, we celebrate Palm Sunday the Sunday before Easter. So what's with the palm branches? Well, palm branches were a symbol of Jewish nationalism. And it had been that way since the time of the Maccabees. This was a political rally for the, for the Hebrews. Think of Canada Day Parade, or for people like me from the States, a 4th of July parade. We'd all be waving flags, right? Well, waving palm branches were akin to waving flags for the Hebrews. It's another clear indicator that the, that the crowds were looking to Jesus as a political savior as a national savior, certainly not as their spiritual savior. Now, I love that in the middle of all this, this storytelling, um, John sticks in verse 16. Verse 16 helps me. It says that this, at first his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. I got to tell you, Verse 16 is a great comfort to me. It's a huge comfort to me. I can't tell you how many times in my life God's been active and doing stuff, and I don't understand. It, in the midst of it, while it's happening, it's like, I don't have a clue. Right? I feel like I'm walking blind or in a fog. He's certainly there, whether I could see him or not, and he's active whether I realize it or not, but it's only later that it makes sense to me. Sometimes the dreams that I have, it's like, oh, I think it means this, or I think it means that. Six, six months later, my, my eyes are open, and understanding comes. Oh, that's what God was doing. And I learned some significant life lesson. Now think about it. These disciples, the ones that, that John's writing about, the ones who didn't understand until later on, they've been walking with God in the flesh. They've been walking with Jesus, the Word made flesh, dwelling among them for three years. Right? They're, they're traveling with them, they're eating with them, they're watching them do all this cool stuff like raising the dead and healing lepers and doing all this amazing stuff. And they didn't understand. That sets me free, guys. That, that sets me free. If they could walk with him 24-7, day in, day out for three years and not understand, then there's got to be space for me on my journey and you on your journey where there'll be aspects of it where we don't understand until sometime later on. But you know what I've learned? Even in the times of not understanding, this is what gets me through. That whole patch where faith is required, right? What does it look like? God speaks a promise to us. All this time goes by, the promise gets fulfilled. Well, we have that in between time. 
We all like when God, God speaks a promise to us, right? Something in, in his word, or he speaks to our heart, or we go to a conference, somebody prophesies over us. A promise is given. But usually there's a considerable amount of time between the promise given and the promise fulfilled. What do we do in that in-between time? That's the time of not understanding, especially if it's extended. I got some promises on my life that still haven't been fulfilled. What do we do in that time of not understanding? Hopefully, in the healthiest of ways, this is where we learn to trust him. Right? I remind myself that indeed he is good and that he absolutely loves me. And even though I fail to understand right now, I put my trust in the fact that he's good and that he loves me. And just like I understood these other things later on in the journey, some of these things I don't have understanding of yet, I'll understand them later on. And until that day comes, I'll trust him in the fact that I know he's good and you know he loves me. I got to tell you what, when I do it other than that, when I refuse to embrace the reality that he's good and that he loves me, it never goes well for me. When I get all twisted up in my axle over the fact that I don't understand, it never leads me anywhere good. I like to ruminate. I'm a thinker. I love to go on long drives in silence. No radio, Nadine's reading a book, or I'm driving by myself, and I will think and think and think and think and think about all this stuff. I'm having a grand old time. I love it. I absolutely love it. This isn't a bad thing. But when I'm in a place of not understanding, and I'm frustrated with God, or I'm angry at God, or I'm wrestling with the fact that, hey, he said this, but right now I'm not living in it. I'm living in some kind of alternative reality other than what he promised. I'm not there yet. We haven't gotten to the other side. When I let go of the two, what I call my two undeniable truths of the universe, that God's good, number one, and number two, that God loves me, when I walk away from that because of my lack of understanding, it never goes well for me. I wind up frustrated and discouraged and angry and somehow with less faith, certainly less peace. So I love here that it says that these guys, these guys who, these disciples who walked with him for three years, there were things they didn't understand. There will be things that we don't understand. In that in-between place, hold on to his goodness and his love, and it'll carry you until understanding comes. That makes sense? It's the place that I've learned trust. And it goes better for me. That believing that he loves me, the, the believing that he's good and holding on to it, it carries me until understanding comes. I'm thinking if it didn't make sense to them until later on, it's perfectly okay for you and for me if it doesn't make sense, if we don't understand until later on as well. Verses 17 and 18. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Uh, many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. Commentator David Guzik writes concerning these verses, the crowds adored Jesus because they believed that the raising of Lazarus from the dead established Jesus' credentials as a conquering Messiah. F.F. Bruce, commentator, adds this. He says, one who could summon 
A dead man back to life would certainly be able to deliver the holy city from the yoke of Caesar. You can see I'm on the same page with both these commentators. Again, the people saw a truth, a truth, but not a deeper reality. Jesus was indeed coming to set them free, but not as they expected. They were looking for a political uh, king like, in, like David to come and set them free in that manner. Jesus had a whole other type of freedom that he was bringing, and it was, it was much greater, far more longing-lasting, and profoundly more significant than what they had hoped for. I wonder how many times we do the same thing. How many times do we assume that God's doing one thing, and we even have bits and pieces that seem to confirm it, when in actuality, he's really doing something else, something grander and something greater. And isn't that where we get frustrated? Where we get disappointed? Where our faith gets tested? But God, I thought it was this. I thought it was this, this, and this. And instead it was that, that, and that. <laughs> we got the T right. That's all we got right. It was <laughs> the first letter. Happens all the time. It should comfort you. I hope it does comfort you to see in Scripture that he didn't meet people's expectations. He did what he came to do. And what he did was great. What he did was amazing. But it was different than the expectations. That happens all the time. I, I've sat with so many people over the years, frustrated, discouraged in their faith, weeping. Because things haven't worked out the way they expected. My heart breaks for them. I know friends who've walked away from the faith because things worked out differently than they, than they thought it was supposed to. What if we just held things a little more loosely? What if we gave ourselves a little bit more grace? What if we were less dogmatic? What if, what if we were a little bit more gray, a little less black or white, and we gave ourselves some room in the margins that things just might work out differently than we expected. It would have worked out better for some of these guys. It certainly would have worked out better for the scribes, the Pharisees, and the chief priests, right? Man, they had no gray. It was black and white, and Jesus was in the black, not in the white, as far as they were concerned. I mean, they missed it all together. Verse 19 says, So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. The popularity of Jesus was offensive to his enemies. It was driving them crazy. To the point, that we've seen in last week's message, to the point of plotting double murder. Right? They've plotted to kill Jesus and because of his popularity, and now they've got to get rid of Lazarus because he's just walking testimony of all this awesome stuff that Jesus is doing. Right? They are so irritated by what's going on, it's driving them so crazy that these religious leaders are plotting double murder. That's pretty aggravated people. And nearly, it's amazing. If you've never read through the whole Gospel of John, go back and read through it. Now, I've read it countless times over the years, but something has captured my attention I never realized before. Right? Everybody thinks about the Gospel of John, oh, it's, this, it's the love gospel, right? And, and true, it's, it's amazing. And we're about to enter into a whole new phase 
of, of direction of the way the, the gospel is going. But these first 12 chapters, I think all but one of them speak of some type of conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees. Nearly every single chapter, there's some kind of clash going on uh, between them. I never real, realized that until we did this study. Some kind of clash with the Jesus and the Pharisees. Uh, with Jesus versus the Pharisees and the chief priests. Between Jesus and the religious order of his day. And it's fierce. It's intense. They want to kill him. That's a pretty serious conflict, wouldn't you say? I mean, I've been in conflict with lots of people, and I might have said in a moment of rage, and you're oh, I could kill that person. But I never actually went out and, and, and organized a plot to kidnap them and then actually murder them, right? There's a difference. Please say yes, there's a difference. <laughs> Good. Good. <laughs> this conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees is soon coming to a head. Now, from the Pharisees' perspective, Jesus, all their worst fears are, coming, are becoming a reality in Jesus. All the people are flocking to Jesus. And they want Jesus to be their new king, to be their new leader. See, remember I said that under, under the temple uh, system, they weren't allowed to have a king. And so in the absence of a king, the, the temple leaders, the chief priests and, and the Pharisees, they grew with lots of uh, political and social power. Now the people are crying out for a king. They are severely threatened. They want to make Jesus a king. They're severely threatened by this. They want Jesus as their, as their earthly Messiah, their earthly king. Every fear, every insecurity these religious leaders have being triggered, being triggered again, and again and again. So, what can we learn from this? You know, what lessons can we glean from this? John 1.14 tells us that the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. That's the incarnation. We looked at that in the first chapter of John that we looked at. The Word became flesh. God took on human form and made His dwelling. He lived among us. And he did that in Jesus. Meaning that the presence of God, the presence of our spiritual, of our heavenly God, was made manifest on earth in Jesus. So when the manifest presence of God shows up, it has an impact. It has an effect. It certainly did when Jesus came to earth in the flesh. And it does today when the Holy Spirit manifests in our midst. And one of the lessons I've learned is just like God manifested in the body of Jesus, irritated Pharisees then, God manifested in the Holy Spirit inside of believers today, still irritates Pharisees. It's astonishing how upset they can get. So what does this teach us? The manifest presence of God in the power of the Holy Spirit, just like it did in the body of Jesus, will disrupt the status quo. I'm discovering that churches have lots of value for status quo. People have lots of value for status quo. God has no value for status quo. Seems absolutely irrelevant to him. He came to set people free. 
And if that means disrupting the status quo, then that's fine. That's what Jesus did. He absolutely, look at his, read through the first 12 chapters of the Gospel of John, and he seriously disrupted the status quo. Now, most of the churches I pastored, they would probably look back and say, yep, Tom, he disrupted the status quo. None of them wanted to kill me for it. <laughs> so they wanted to kill Jesus for it. Well, some of them might want to kill me. I don't need you to give me a look. <laughs> the manifest presence of God will disrupt the status quo. That's what Jesus did. That's what the Holy Spirit does. The manifest presence of God will bring change. It will change things. That's what Jesus did. Jesus brought dramatic change. Changed the whole world. We live today in the ripple effects of the change that Jesus wrought. That's what the Holy Spirit does. The manifest presence of God will profoundly trigger religious spirits. It makes them irrationally angry. It makes them irrationally angry and threatened. That's what Jesus did. And that's what the Holy Spirit does. Angie and I were talking recently about the different manifestations that she's experienced in the Holy Spirit. And I, I, I encouraged her with this. I says, when these things happen, would you ask God questions? Lord, what does this mean? Lord, what does that mean? And one of these days soon, we'll probably have you come up and we'll talk about it. And so when she does this, it's an indication to her that God's doing thing A. And when God does that on her, it's an indication he's doing thing B. Would that help if you knew what it meant? God speaks metaphorically. He speaks parabolically. That he's, this is the, his language. So I think it will be a good teaching opportunity at some point. I don't think we have time today. Will you be up for that some point in the future? I think that would be fun. It would be a good learning experience for all of us. We need to understand his ways when he manifests in our midst. I want more of him. Guys, I want so much more of him. I, if I could have my way, I would reach inside your hearts and turn on whatever switch needs to be turned on so that all of you can manifest in the presence of the Holy Spirit. I wouldn't care if we had people pogoing around here like bunnies. I mean, I really couldn't care. I would be so happy that the Spirit of God is engaging in you on a physical level that it's uncontrollable, uncontainable. I want a God that I can't control. How about you? I want a God that I can't contain. We sing songs about that. What would it look like on a Sunday morning? What if engaging in the Spirit was higher value than social propriety? Right? What if something so... Um, wonderful happened inside of us that when the Spirit of God touches us, it's like sticking our finger in a light socket. The Spirit of God, that's the Spirit of God manifesting in our midst. Just like Jesus came and he disrupted the status quo in physical form, when Jesus left, he sent us the Spirit. And, and it's the same. The Father, Son, and Spirit are entirely one. They're completely unified. When the disciples said to Jesus, show us the Father, he says, have I been, you so, been with you so long and you don't know? When you've seen me, you've seen the Father. When we see the Holy Spirit, we see the Father, we see the Son. Right? It's the same God. 
It's not just a portion. It's not a sliver. It's not. It's, it's the same God. I want all of him. I want the warm, fuzzy part. I want the wild, crazy part. I want all of it. I want to learn from it. I think there's purpose and meaning to it that sometimes we, we don't understand. But make no mistake. And this is one of the things we can learn from John chapter 12. When the manifest presence of God comes, it disrupts the status quo. It brings change, and it triggers profoundly religious spirits. How does it do it? It makes them irrationally angry, and it makes them feel threatened. Right? That's what it does. I love you, Angie. I think Angie's a huge gift to our body. I do. I know that some people find it uncomfortable with the manifestations. I think when the history of the Charlottetown Vineyard is, is written someday, we'll look back on this uh, chapter in our history and we'll say Angie Austin was a blessing. I truly believe that. And God used her to move us forward. She is a blessing. Amen. So, what else does the manifest presence of God do? It makes room for the outcasts. It makes room for the people who wouldn't fit in before. And it makes room for the supernatural. That's what Jesus did. That's what the Holy Spirit does. The manifest presence of God stirs passions and it creates choice. Will I follow Jesus for all I've got? Or do I want to kill him? It stirs passion. And it creates choice. There were two responses to what we see happening uh, in chapter 11 and chapter 12. Mary loved Jesus passionately and publicly. She did. It was, man, that was a passionate act. It was an incredible public act. And Judas was so offended that he decided to betray Jesus. Each had a choice. Just like the crowds with the palm branches, they had a choice to welcome Jesus in, or the Pharisees in their insecurities to continue to plot to kill Jesus. The manifest presence of God in our midst will stir passions and will create choice. We too have a choice. What will we do with the manifest presence of God in our lives? What are you and I going to do with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit? Pharisees and disciples alike had to decide what they were going to do with it, what they were going to do with the Word of God made flesh dwelling among them. We have to decide what we're going to do with Christ in us, the hope of glory, namely the Holy Spirit. What are we going to do? Scripture makes it abundantly clear that we are temples of the Holy Spirit, that He lives inside of us. For some of us, he's a quieter neighbor than others. <laughs> For some, he's a little bit noisier neighbor. But he lives within us nonetheless. Jesus loved the people. But he did not conform in any way, shape, or form to the religious order, to their religious order, or to the order of the day. He loved the people. 
But he didn't conform to their way of doing things. I don't want to conform to, to the religious orders of our day. I really don't. I do want to conform to God. I want the Holy Spirit to move in. He can rearrange all the furniture. He can do whatever he wants. He can throw stuff out, paint the walls. Do whatever you want, Lord. Come and make it your home. Turn the music up as loud as you want it. You live here. I'm betting that that's what you want too. You don't want to conform to the religious order of the day. You want to conform to him. You want to let him come in and rule and reign. So, how about we pray? Let's pray. Oh, God. Oh, God. Lord, we ask you to come and be God in our midst. Come and act like God. Come and do God-sized things. Lord, we ask you to come and have your way. Come, Holy Spirit, and offend our minds and reveal our hearts. Come and do things the way you want to do them. Not the way we want them done. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't be one of the people waving the palm branches. And that we wouldn't be one of the disciples who failed to understand. And that we certainly wouldn't be one of the Pharisees plotting to kill you. Lord, I pray for every man, woman, and child here today. Make us like Mary. Make us to be like Mary, passionately in love with you. Just crazy in love with you. I'm fire for you, God. So let's, um, let's have some ministry time today. Why don't you guys stand? And instead of having people come forward today, why don't we break down into, say, groups of uh, three or four? Maybe you need prayer today. Do you have choices to make? Are you struggling? Are you in a place today where you're struggling where God has not worked according to your expectations? Has the manifest presence of God in your life disrupted your journey? Do you have any prayer need at all? Do you have need today for physical healing or, or financial provision? Maybe it's conflict resolution. When I sing, uh, I'm going to sing that last song again. Sing praises to your name, be lifted up. While I do that, why don't you guys break down the groups of three and four and just pray for another. Sound like a good idea? I sing praises to your name. Praises to your name. Name that so much higher than all names. 
just form groups of three or four. Honor to your name. Pray with one another. Name that so much greater than all Greater than 
Lord, we thank you for what you're doing in our midst. Holy Spirit, come. Come and do more, God. Work and move in all of our hearts and all of our minds. Lord, we ask for your presence, your power, your provision. Lord, heal the sick today. Set the captives free. Give us eyes that see and ears that hear. Come and do exceedingly and abundantly more than our expectations, oh God.